Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. Good to have you here. Glad you are joining us. Today, we have a, a longtime speaker friend of mine, Josh Sunquist, who's going to be hanging out with us. Josh is a very successful speaker. He has an insane life story, and uh, I've referenced him numerous times. Maybe you've heard me talk about him. I'll let him share his life story, but we talk a lot about that. You're a speaker, a motivational speaker. You've got a crazy life story. How do you incorporate that into something that uh, is relevant and applicable for audiences? How do you position yourself in a way that doesn't you don't get lost in the sea of other motivational stories with cool or motivational speakers with crazy life stories? So we have a, a just a wide ranging conversation here that I think you're really going to enjoy. You're really going to get a lot from. We also just talk about what makes the difference between speakers that make it and speakers that don't. Josh has been in the game for a long time, and so he shares some uh, some wisdom and insight there at the end. So a lot of I think you're going to learn from. So before we get to today's episode, let me remind you if you you haven't already, you definitely want to stop by and check out our YouTube channel. So over there, we are dropping new videos every single week. And so we'd love to uh, to connect with you there. You can go to youtube.com slash the speaker lab, youtube.com slash the speaker lab, especially some speech breakdowns. We're taking popular keynotes and presentations and uh, keynote speakers and taking some of their talks and uh, adding some context to them, adding some our little breakdown and feedback to them. So I think you can, uh, you can definitely learn a lot there. So check those out. All right, let's get to this uh, conversation with uh, Josh Sunquist. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, joined by my buddy Josh Sunquist. And actually, it's really cool to have Josh here with us. Uh, Josh and I got started probably a similar time way back when. And I remember we compared notes early on of just like, what are we doing? How do we do this? And uh, how do we become speakers? And uh, thankfully, we, we've learned a couple things to along the way. So, Josh, thanks for uh, hanging out with us today. Yeah, likewise, man. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, you bet. So let's backtrack a little bit. And actually, before we get to the backtrack part, why don't you give us a quick snapshot on speaking, how much speaking you're doing, who you're speaking to. You've got a couple other creative outlets that we'll get to as well. But uh, give us the overall view of, of speaking and how speaking fits into your world. Okay. Yeah, you would definitely describe being a motivational speaker is my day job, which is to say is how I pay the bills. It is not necessarily how I spend all of my time, but to the extent that I have a job, it is the job of giving speeches. So I uh, speak primarily to, I would say, corporate sales groups is probably the at least plurality, maybe majority of the audiences I speak to each year. And I am a life story type motivational speaker. So I fall in the sort of genre of like an inspiring life story and entertaining presenter who is also funny and has some motivational content that the audience can walk away with. That's what I do. Yeah. And so how much speaking are you doing currently? How many gigs a year do you typically do? I would say I aim to be far less busy. Well, I think speakers tend to 
exaggerate anytime a speaker is telling you something about their career. I feel like, yeah, just divide that in half and maybe that's at, like maybe that's the real number. Right, right. <laughs> like right, every speaker's like, Oh yeah, I'm doing like hundred and fifty dates. Really? A hundred fifty do you have a private jet to get you to those hundred fifty dates a year? Like that's a very very uh, difficult travel schedule to even just practically maintain. So yeah, you know, I mean, you know how it is, it's kind of seasonal, right? Well, I would say the perfect thing to me would be like one per week year yeah. round. Realistically though, of course, no one does events in the holidays and no one does events in the summer, really, like not much. So, you know, it works out to be like a few per month, but like in the spring and the fall, it's like one a week-ish. And I, tr- yeah, I try not to add more than one a week. I just find it to be exhausting, but sometimes it just works out. You have multiple holds and then you have to do multiple in a week. And then the summer and the fall or the summer and the winter are like much, much more chill. So like I just had a speech on the day we're recording our conversation. I just had a speech yesterday. It is the summer currently. And that is, looks like I'm probably going to book something else later in August. But right now that's like the only speech I have in August. So that's sort of my seasonal schedule for you. Yeah, it's can be uh and it's and again like you've been in it for the the industry for a while so it feels like this feast versus famine schedule of uh there's some months you're like dang I'm just killing it and months where you're just there's crickets and nothing and you think that was it and and you're you're done and everything uh everything in between. Do you still find like years into the business you've seen the cycles and you've seen the highs and the lows? Do you still feel like the nerves or the anxiousness of like maybe I'm not going to get any more bookings or maybe they're not interested anymore or maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I've given my last speech. Do you ever feel that anxiety? Totally. I mean, I think, you know, generally speaking, like that is partially also just the nature of self-employment. You know, I tell people who have a salary that like when you work for yourself, it's really unstable. You're not guaranteed income in the future. People who work in jobs are like, oh, no, no, no. But I'm also that because I could be fired anytime for my job. Like, "Mm, no, it's not the same. Like, because unless you're fired, in fact, you will continue to get a salary that just shows up in your bank account every week or uh, twice a month or whatever. And if you have a problem with your salary, you have an HR person you can go to to help you figure that out. Or like if the money isn't coming in, like, you know, as a speaker, it's all on you. And even like you have to get the client to pay you, even if you go do the work. So yeah, it's it's like that is still always a source, or like a low key source of anxiety. Right. To your point about the seasonality of it, I've done it long enough, I guess that I at least maybe not always emotionally, but at least logically, I know that there are annual peaks and valleys in the requests and bookings that are coming in. Fortunately, to help alleviate my stress in that regard, recently, just in the last year, my wife actually like, started working with me in the speaking business. And one of the things she does is tracks like all that sort of incoming data of like the requests and the bookings and stuff. So that when, so that now this year is kind of the first time that when I like, I don't know what month it was, maybe like June or something, which is, is typically a low request month, June or July, you know, like when I feel like, man, it seems like we aren't having a lot of requests and then I can actually look at the numbers instead of just yeah. being like, I feel like this in my gut. I look at the numbers and be like, yeah, the requests are way down. But then I can look at, because we've got all my historical data for like 10 years, and I can be like, oh, average across 10 years and hundreds of uh, requests have come in on June, like we're actually right on average. Uh, to answer your question, yes, I, it's certainly something that I still worry about in a sense, even as an established speaker, but also having now had the data and experience, I, you know, I can at least on a logical level tell myself, well, this this will, it will pick back up once everyone's home from vacation. <laughs> this may be more of a question for Ashley on that side of it, your wife, but is, how is she tracking all that? Is that just in a, a Google spreadsheet or what's that look like? Yep, just a lot of Google spreadsheets. You know, we looked at 
different, I don't, you know, various like CRM and sales force ish things, but all of them were just, and, and this is the nature, especially of CRMs are just like unnecessary complex for what, like the amount of data that we're trying to track. So yeah, it's just, it's pretty much just a variety of, of Google spreadsheets. Cool. All right. So let's go back in, in time here because one of the things that you you touched on is that you're kind of a, a life story motivational speaker and you have uh, mm-hmm. one of the more unique life stories. So why don't you give us that, uh, for those that aren't familiar with you, uh, can you give us the life story? I can give you the life story. In broad strokes, I would, uh, we, growing up, I was, a, well, I was a normal kid for when I say normal, I mean physically I was configured normal. I was uh, also homeschooled and I have all of the qualities that come along with homeschooling. I know you homeschool your, your girls, right? We do. We do. So we're going to try to were mess you, up in our were you, <laughs> were you homeschooled? I was not. No, no. Um, okay. So once when our daughter, our oldest daughter was in finished first grade, we had talked about doing it. And to be honest with you, mm-hmm. part of what kept us from doing it was some of what you're half joking, half serious referring to of just like, I know some homeschool families and uh, mm-hmm. I don't know that we want our family turning out like that. Thankfully, it seems like, I'm curious if you got any take on this, but it seems like there have it's more common now and there's a lot more uh, resources and opportunities available. And it's it's not as much of a stigmatized thing where your, your kids are, are <laughs> may turn out funky or whatever. Uh, so, um, yeah, so, so we've been doing, I think yeah. we started our seventh year, I think. And cool. so far, I think they're all normal. I mean, they got their, yeah. clothes, but, you know, they're hanging it. Well, in. yeah. I mean, the other funny thing is like, even if homeschoolers tend to have certain traits, there's also like some pretty weird kids in public school. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, it's not like maybe people are weird in different ways or tend to be weird, weird in similar ways, depending on the environment. But like, yeah, like normal school, quote unquote, is no guarantee of successful outcomes. Uh, in fact, it, it is probably less likely to lead to uh, such than homeschool. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, I mean, because uh, ultimately what happened is then I was diagnosed with cancer and I spent a year on chemotherapy. And in that sense, being homeschooled was amazing because otherwise I would have just missed like a year of school you know i was just kind of like falling a grade behind so they spent you know like a hundred nights of that year you know as an inpatient in the hospital so it just wouldn't have worked so yeah in that sense like homeschooling was great and you know i I mean i I like yeah i like to joke about it but yeah i think homeschooling instilled a lot of the traits in me that i think are requisite for being self-employed so in that sense like i'm you know i'm super grateful to my parents for giving that to me but yeah as far as that that year uh, that was when i was nine i had a bone cancer called ewing sarcoma in my left leg at a 50 percent chance to live i did some chemo for a while the chemo did not uh, get rid of the tumor which was in my femur so my left leg was amputated a month before my 10th birthday and about three months into that year of treatment while well i should say that before i was diagnosed with cancer my my favorite sport was playing soccer and i never really played it competitively but it was like what i wanted to do was like be on a soccer team so i lost my leg and, and there wasn't really opportunities for me to play soccer at that point as an amputee but through my rehab hospital i learned how to ski uh, while i was still on chemotherapy at like a a local ski resort in Virginia called Macedon. So I loved skiing. And as I finished the chemotherapy and my hair grew back and eventually I was cured of the cancer, skiing was like my favorite kind of recreational sport. And then when I was a teenager, I started skiing competitively, like that is racing. And I set my sights on competing in the Paralympics. So then when I was a senior in high school, I graduated high school early and moved out to Colorado to sort of train and compete full time, which I did more or less for like six seasons and 
eventually did make the Paralympic team in a lot of years ago now, but in 2006, and uh, which was awesome, obviously, and really cool. And then I, I stopped skiing after that. But um, I guess the cool, I think, bookend to my story that's relatively recent is that this did not exist when I lost my leg, but today there's a sport called amputee soccer, which is played in many countries around the world. I think in almost maybe every continent now where uh, people, anyway, the, the, the game is you play, uh, everyone has one leg and plays soccer with crutches. And I, I use crutches every day. Like I'm a full-time crutch user. So I now play, and I have played for the past five years on the U.S. amputee soccer team. So it is not like a full-time kind of gig. Like we're not like that elite, but we are the best that the United States has to offer. And so we go go to a couple of tournaments every year. And for me, it's it's a cool full circle thing since playing on a soccer team was what I wanted to do so much as a kid. And certainly after I lost my leg, it was not something I imagined would ever happen. But now today as an adult, it has, yeah. uh, which is which, which is a cool thing. And, and a cool, I think, um, you know, story for people to hear, like when, you know, when I share that in speeches, because I think we all, of course, want to believe that when bad things happen, that, uh, that things will turn out all right in the end, or even that those those bad things might, I don't know, put us in a position or teach us something, uh, make us a new kind of person that that results in sort of good things happening later. Um, and I think I've been fortunate enough to have a life story and experience that that affirms that hunch or belief, which is which is certainly an asset as as a motivational speaker. Yeah. That's an amazing story. And uh, I've heard the story. I've heard you deliver it in speech format, um, which is just as powerful. And so one of the things that, uh, in fact, I've, I've used you as an example numerous times with this is saying like, I always assumed as a speaker when I was getting started that you had to have some crazy life story, that you had to have something mm-hmm. that happened to you. And so I'll talk about yeah. you. Like my, my friend Josh had cancer as a child, had a leg amputated and went on to become a, a one-legged skier in the Paralympics. And I'm just like, I can't compete with that. Like I'm a normal yeah dude who's had a pretty normal life from the Midwest. I'm like, there's nothing on paper that would qualify me to be a speaker. So I'm curious. Yeah, that sucks for you, man. (laughs) From your perspective. Normal privileged life. It's such a bummer. Shut up. So how do you feel like your life story has worked for you or worked against you in in terms of Mm -hmm. of going now as a speaker? You know, I think what's ironic about that for me, uh, looking back, is that I was giving like some speech-esque things from when, when I lost my leg, right? When I was like 10 years old, I was in front of audiences like at churches and stuff, kind of being interviewed. When I was 12 years old, I did a keynote speech at a sports banquet for a Christian school, like 20 minutes, me by myself on stage, right? So uh, I'm 35 now. So that was 23 years ago. So that's as I've been speaking for a long time. At that age, of course, I did not consider myself to be a speaker, nor did I really know. I think maybe when I was like, then, I don't know, 13, 14, I like, I kind of saw some speakers and knew like, this was sort of a job that some people had. And it was like immediately appealing to me. Like I, I thought I remember even telling a speaker once when I was probably 13 that, uh, that I'd seen speak, I was like, oh man, your job is like my dream job. But my assumption was, Grant, uh, like when I was like that age, 13, 14, like I knew about speaking. I thought this was my dream job because I, I knew I enjoyed speaking. But I thought, you know, the problem for me is that you have to have a great life story to be a speaker. And I don't have an amazing life story. What a bummer. Like, wouldn't that be cool if I did? Which is so 
hilarious, but somehow I just didn't, I didn't see that. Like I didn't see that I had a story like as a speaker. So then when I was 15, a, a motivational, like a youth speaker called Milton Crea came to my high school and he is not like a life story speaker. He's sort of a drug and alcohol prevention awareness speaker. Like he talked zero about himself, but did an amazing speech, like impact a lot of people's lives in my high school. And I was like, Oh wow. Like he doesn't have a life story yet. He is a top motivational speaker. Therefore, I could also be a motivational speaker as another person who doesn't have a life story. So I started giving speeches like right then. I, like I was 15. I started cold calling middle school principals. I was like, hey, what's up? I'm Josh. I'm 15 years old. I care a lot about goal setting. Like I want to come teach your kids about goal setting. And they would be like, what? And hang up on me. But that's how I got started. And I started like then very slowly kind of getting started speaking middle schools, giving horrible speeches for many years. But you know, it took me a couple years, honestly, of doing that before I realized like, whoa, you know, the only time people are really paying attention to my speech is when I'm telling stories. And then I started to realize that I did have a story that was pretty interesting and gave people sort of hope or, or you know, was relatable to people as they considered the adversity that they were facing in their own life. So, of course, then now I would say for sure I'm a life story speaker and that's, you know, the cornerstone or foundation of, of every speech that I give. But that's a really long way of saying also that that I do feel strongly because I, you know, like I got started as a speaker without a story. I do feel strongly like that you can do that. I also feel strongly that if you want to be a life story speaker, everyone does have some kind of story and you may not realize it. Now your life story might not turn out to be as dramatic as mine, but like everyone has that. And if you know, it's, it's more a matter of knowing how to look for a story. Like I feel very confident because I've done this for a long time. I feel confident that if hypothetically or somehow you could take away my story or if you came to me and said, Josh, you're not allowed to tell any of these stories that you've told before and you have to start over. I feel confident I could start over as a motivational speaker telling other stories about my life, right? Like, yeah. you know, let's say I want to talk, you know, I want to be a speaker that talks about like my relationship with my parents and I'll tell like powerful stories about my relationship with my parents that will just be universally relatable because everyone has parents, right? For example. So all of which is to say that, yes, certainly having, I would say, I would say I have the sort of story that when people set out to find a motivational speaker, they are imagining something like me. So, you know, often when people sort of then come across me, they're like, oh yeah, this is the kind of person we were looking for. And the advantage is that actually, not so much the speech itself, um, because I think you can speak on any number of topics from your own personal life or from, or from like other life stories, you know, as a motivational type speaker. And of course, there's many other types of speakers besides like motivational type, which you can also be, but I'm sure you have podcast episodes about that. Ultimately, I do see it an advantage, but at the same time, I don't see someone who feels like they don't have that story. I don't see that necessarily as a um, barrier uh, that is unsurmountable. So the other thing I'm, I'm curious about then is speaking on like, okay, I'll, I want to speak on my life story or have something and maybe, again, maybe it could be as something as, as uh, quote unquote dramatic as what you have experienced or maybe it is like, it feels less dramatic, but nonetheless, I've had this, you know, some crazy thing that's happened in life and it seems like it's kind of interesting to people. And so being a quote unquote motivational speaker who shares their life story, I know for us, like we hear from a lot of speakers that are like, I want to be a, a motivational speaker. I want to tell my story, right? And so there's, right. there's, there's something to that, but there's also something to like an audience 
the audience is always wanting to know like, yeah, 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 that, that's crazy that, that happened to you, but how does that affect me? And so I'm curious mm-hmm. for, from your perspective, what you have done over the course of your career to make sure that like this story is powerful and it's a great hook and it'll help me get my foot in the door and it's an amazing inspirational story. But as you've kind of figured out like, yeah, but here's how it applies to, you know, the hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people that are sitting out in that room. How have you kind of evolved and, and figured that out along the way? So especially from an event planner standpoint that they're like, yes, this makes sense for our audience. We need this. Do you mean sort of like, as because I would say like as a speaker, you, let's say the one way I would, I would describe it and I have described it is that the difference between a motivational speaker or an inspirational speaker and an inspirational movie is that the speaker or a speech is the story plus the message, right? So for example, like Rudy Rudiger is, you know, the inspiration for the movie Rudy. There is a movie called Rudy where you can see his, his life story and it's a very inspiring movie. However, if you, know, you brought him to speak at your event instead of just playing the movie, which would be illegal, but let's say you licensed it, whatever. But if you brought him to speak at your event, you would want you would want his story, but you would also want like a message or lessons that would be applicable to you. Is that what you're talking about? Chris? Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. So do you yeah. feel like that's kind of been the way that you've had to position it is it's more than just they're telling me to recite a story, but they're telling me to recite the story. And here's how, here's what I learned. And here's how this applies to you. Is that kind of the approach that you've always taken? Yes, absolutely. And I think, yes, the implication of your question is correct in that. I think people, a lot of people, yeah, will get into speaking because they have a story um, that they either want to share or because people are like, oh, you know what? Like, you have a great story. Like, come speak to my support group or whatever. And then people are like, you should, you know, you could, you know, that I heard about like, I heard about this guy, this motivational speaker who gets paid to do that. Like, you should figure out how to do that. And so then they're like, yeah, okay, cool. I just need to go like share my story. And what you're saying is correct. That ultimately, if you want to, you know, like get paid to be a speaker, it is not enough to merely have a life story. In fact, you know, like we discussed, it's not even requisite. What is requisite or what is required is that you have a message that offers value to the audience, which aligns with the benefits that a particular meeting planner is looking for. If you have a story, I think if you have a story that lines up with that message, that's a bonus. But like, let's say just take an example, like, let's say you want to speak in like the youth market and a hot topic in the youth market as ever is bullying. So a meeting planner is going out looking for like a bullying speaker. They're looking for a bullying, like they're looking for someone who can talk about bullying. Now you could just be merely an expert in bullying. It would be a bonus if you had a life story where you're like, I was bullied and here's a message about bullying. But I think, but being able to communicate, hey, meeting planner, it's not just like, oh, I was bullied, therefore I should talk to your kids. No, no, it's like, I was bullied, but I learned, I have learned these things. I have become an expert in this subject and I will teach, you know, I will share these three things with your students that have been proven to help like alleviate bullying in in schools. In my, to, to pivot to like an example of, of me, my overall, like, I guess, theme or, or message that I, I generally talk about is my motto that I had when I was training for the Paralympics, one more thing, one more time. So when people ask me, oh, you're a motivational speaker, what do you speak about? This is what I say. I say, when I was training for the Paralympics, I had a motto. My motto was one more thing, one more time. And my speeches are about what is the one more thing, one more time for you? Or what is the one more thing, one more time for this particular audience? So for example, I spoke yesterday to a a biotech company that does research. So my speech was about what is the one more thing, 
one more time that these researchers can do in their biotech company to be more effective and to you know reach their goals both as sort of human beings and as employees of this organization. And that is the key thing to the meaning platter. Like sure, they are looking for a, a, a inspiring story, but they're also looking to know, great, there is an ROI that is a return on investment that our people will see from the message, like the valuable information or feelings or whatever that this speaker will give to my audience. Yeah, that makes sense. I know in, in knowing you that you got your start largely speaking to youth audiences and, and the education mm-hmm. space, high schools, colleges. Today, you mentioned you do a lot more corporate, do a lot more with like sales meetings. So one of the things I'm curious on is when you have a, a life story and you're delivering a, a motivational message, devil's advocates could say like, you could hypothetically speak to anybody, you know, like who does a good motivational mm-hmm. message appeal to? It appeals to humans, right? So, but you also sure. know from a, a business perspective, you can't try to appeal to everybody. Otherwise you appeal to nobody. So how have you tried to, or how have you narrowed down to say, okay, here's my message. And here, and even though it could appeal to everyone, here's how I've tried to narrow it down. So I don't get just lost in the sea of people trying to appeal to, to everyone. Is there anything that you've done there or thought through and just like strategy wise of what you're processing to make sure that you're focused on a, a specific audience? Yeah, that's a good question. And you're right that that's, that's one of those areas where a life story can be a double-edged sword, especially if it's in a sense, sort of a broad life story. Yeah, it can appeal to anyone. Therefore, so, you know, like, is it applicable or unique or relevant to any specific group? Right. Because if I don't, yeah, like, let's say you're an expert in like, not so much a life story speaker, but you're like an inspiring speaker uh, who's who's an expert in like life insurance. Well, cool. You know what? Like high schools are probably not going to hire you, but you know who's going to hire you? Life insurance companies, right? (laughs) Right. So you can go out and find all the life insurance companies and market to them. Like, you know, like that having that niche is, yeah, sure, it limits you, but but simultaneously what limits you makes it so much easier to figure out who your audience should be and could be and to identify prospects, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do in the speaking business. As far as me personally, my niche that I've yeah, worked into, you know, yeah, I have spoken to a lot of different types of groups in my career, uh, especially, you know, when I was getting started. And my advice to always, you know, always to speakers is like, literally speak to anyone, anytime, anywhere for any amount of money until you are so busy that you have to start charging fees because you just can't even possibly take all, all this demand for your like semi-free speeches. So in that sense, like, yeah, I spoke to like, I mean, in any environment, I've spoken in barns. I've spoken to, to audiences that all sit on a couch. Last year, I spoke at a piano bar, a dueling piano bar, Grant. <laughs> I saw a picture of what that. I've done, I've done all the things. So, yeah, I guess in that sense, I did not start out knowing, like, here's the kind of groups I want to speak to. But over time, maybe uh, two or three years ago, I thought to myself, by then, uh, yeah, I was more speaking to adults. And I think a lot of that for me has sort of been a an age thing. I feel like when I was in my mid twenties, that was like peak awesome for speaking to teenagers. Cause I'm like just a little bit older than them, but young enough that, that there's like a natural affinity. I still, you know, I speak sort of their language. I'm into their pop culture, but I noticed as I got older, I was literally before speaking to teenagers, I would like text my little sister who's like, who was 17 and be like, Hey, Anna, like what's happening with celebrities this week that I can reference. So the kids will think I'm cool. Right. Uh, and if that's what you're doing, like, yeah, you probably, 
you're probably not speaking to the right audience. <laughs> so increasingly, I found yeah, I was more effective speaking to adults. But then, but then I looked at the, you know, I, I would literally just look at a list of speaker uh, of speeches I'd given in the last years, or, or and they said like, what speeches felt like they landed well, or like, where was their natural affinity with the audience? And I found that they were salespeople. And I think the reasons for that, I think, are that salespeople, I think it's just, I have a, a similar personality to them. And probably you would say that you do too. Because you know, I feel, Grant, my job, I am a salesperson. Yeah. I sell speeches. It happens to be that there's this public aspect to my sales job that is what people see and that, that's what they imagine the job is. But it's not. That would be like saying that the job of being a motivational speaker is giving speeches would be like saying the job of a real estate agent is handing the keys to a person who has just bought the house. Like, that's your job. You hand out keys. No, no, no. That's like the cool thing you get to do at the end of your sales process. You get to hand some keys after you do your actual job, which is selling the house. Right. So I think a lot of speakers ha- get that backwards and don't understand that. And that's a big impediment to why they they can't get started because they don't realize that actually all I do all the time, all day, is sell speeches in a, is a very ordinary sales job. I get leads, I follow up on the leads, I call the leads, I negotiate contracts, I write contracts, I send contracts. It's just like selling anything else. And in that sense, when I speak to salespeople, they are selling different things than I am, right? They're selling financial products or they're selling pharmaceuticals or they're selling, I mean, just... Any, like I spoke to a, a seed company. The, I spoke to this summer a, a group of people. They sell seeds to farmers. Right? It's like sales. You know, you don't realize, but everything you see in the world, there's a salesperson behind that, yeah. uh, and that salesperson needs to be motivated. And I find that I'm a good speaker for that scenario because I get them, and and I feel like therefore they get me. I feel like I can be myself in front of them. I have a, a, maybe an intense personality, but so do they. So it's not like a turnoff for them. Uh, in fact, they're like, yeah, yeah. Like I get this guy. I get one more thing one more time. Like they want want to be motivated. They want to be excited. They're fun people. They're extroverted. They're high energy. So I've just found for me, mostly through trial and error, that that is the niche that works best uh, for me. I still speak to a variety of different groups, but like my sweet spot, I think, is, is salespeople. Cool. I like that. Dude, I have so many more questions for you, but I also want to be respectful on time here. So let me ask you this. I know, again, you're someone Dude, who's Grant, been- I could, talk about, I could talk about this stuff like all day. Like, I, I you got know, so many I mean, questions I'm sure for you. you. I'm sure you uh, no. I'm that's the same. Don't yeah. All uh, as much time as you want. I mean, because you know how this is, right? And like, especially when you to speak a bunch, right? It's like the questions that people want to ask you about speaking are not the questions that you want to talk about necessarily. Or like an example, like Grant. Remember when? Man, geez, 2008 maybe when I spoke at National Speakers Association and you were there. Remember we like hung out all like that whole week. Such a funny experience because you know normally after speech people are like, oh, like what kind of cancer did you have or what's it like being a petite? Which is fine. I'm happy to talk about those things and that's obviously what I talk about my speeches. But like after I spoke at the Speakers Association, people came up and they're like, whoa, like your diction is amazing or like your (laughs) cadence. Like your cadence was fascinating and I was like, yeah. I think about that too. I'm glad that you noticed. Let's talk about cadence. So I'm sure you feel similar. So yeah, so it's like having a conversation like this is super fun. Okay. Uh, as, so as a, yeah. As a total away. side note, as a total side note, it felt like it felt like that conference for you was like a like a big game changing moment. Did you feel like that as well? Because I just remember, I remember seeing your speech. I remember we were hanging out before and after it, and like you killed it. You killed it. And it was, I remember it was like a shorter session because it was only like what, 10, 15 minutes or something? 20 minutes? Yeah, I think I, was, I, think I had 12 minutes maybe. Yeah. yeah. But I just, I just remember like 
you killed it. And everywhere we went after that, like people were just coming up to you. You killed it. It was awesome. I remember it opened up some doors for you. Did you feel like that was a big turning point for the career? It certainly was a, a great boost for my ego temporarily. <laughs> like I think, you know, I think that there's a, I don't know if I want to say it, a danger, but I think, I think there is a tendency, you know, when you're getting started as a speaker that when, because yes, like, thank you. And I agree with you that like people really liked that speech at that conference. Like it was crazy. People were so stoked about it. I couldn't walk around, you know, really like you you were walking around with me. So like, so that people, so I could just go to the bathroom, you know? And I think there's a tendency when you're getting started as a speaker to think, Oh man, now that I gave this one dope speech or like, Oh man, I got, in a magazine or like I was on TV briefly the phone is going to ring forever like I'm set I'm going to have so many speeches and it's like nope like not even close you know like you have to have what seem to be game changing moments you have to have like a hundred of those and then maybe you'll be able to like get started <laughs> as a professional speaker so like yeah it certainly was a boost and I did get like some speeches out of it and I still like come across speakers today who, who will be like you know what I remember when you gave that speech 10 years ago that's amazing but it, it probably was like not the game change in my career that I might have hoped it would be or, or imagined it would be at the time. Yeah, that's so true. Like, uh, I think I can think of like a couple of key events. Like, man, when I got into that, like it, it helped, it helped me feel legitimate. It helped maybe to other speakers or other event planners for me to feel legitimate, but it wasn't like, man, everything changed. And like, it was just, I don't yeah. know, it was just milk and honey from there on. Like it just, it's nope. not that at all. Yeah, totally. All right. So here's what I wanted to ask you is, again, you've been in the industry for a long time. You've had no shortage of speakers who have come to you looking for help and, and advice and wanting to get started and that sort of thing, which is a side note. You just posted a massive behemoth epic blog post <clears throat> with like, it seemed like just a brain dump of everything you you knew on all things speaking. So yep. we'll definitely link up to that. It's a really, really well done, really good. You did a great job with it. So it's Thanks, you know, highly recommend people check it out. But my question is like, again, you've been in the industry for a long time. You've seen plenty of speakers come and go. What's the difference between speakers that make it and speakers that don't? Just hustle, honestly. It's like being willing to hustle. I, you know, I think a lot of people, yeah, it's like they see, like I said, it's like that incorrect perspective of imagining that the job is giving speeches when in fact the job is finding and booking speeches. And people are uninterested in that or unwilling to do that, or they don't believe that that's what they need to be doing. And so just my experience is, it's like the people that are hungry enough that come in and say, you know, like, and this is how I felt like I was when I was a teenager. And when I come across speakers who are like this, I'm like, yeah, you're going to make this business. Or like, you know what? I don't care. Like, I will do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter if it takes me years, which it will. Like, it, it, I'll dedicate myself for years to this. If they have a job, it's like, this is what I'm going to do for three or four hours. And every night after I get home from my day job is I'm going to go look for speeches. Those are the people who are going to make it. And people who are not going to make it are like, you know what? Like, I gave a couple speeches. I really like doing it. I've heard that there's celebrity speakers, you know, who get like a hundred grand per speech. I'm just looking for like three of those per year. That's just, you know, I'm just hoping I can call like if maybe if I get my website up, that those are people who are like, mm, yeah, you know what? That's, <laughs> this is not uh, for you. Yeah, it's probably, you know, like go ahead, you know, go for it if you want to try that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's going to take a lot more focus than that. A lot more hustle. For sure. Yeah, very true, very true. I totally agree with that, that, uh, you know, speakers that are just kind of dabbling in it versus those that are just like, I'm going to figure this out. Either you're going to help me or I'm going to find someone that's going to help me or I'm, I'm going to figure it out one way or the other. And they're just totally. and nothing out. wrong with dabbling. Like dabbling's fine. Having hobbies is fine. Uh, it's just, if you want this to be your job, dabbling is not a good strategy. 
Yep. hundred percent. Totally. We didn't have a chance to get to, you've written multiple books. You have a one man show. You uh, do some stand up comedy. You have a very popular YouTube channel. You have all sorts of stuff happening in life. So if people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, where can we go for all that? Yeah, I'm very active on social media. As you mentioned, pretty much on any social media platform people might be on, I'm probably posting content there. I do a lot of internet video. So yeah, people can follow me or check out my profiles at Josh Sunquist. That's just my name at symbol Josh, S-U-N-D-Q-U-I-S-T on Instagram or YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever. And of course, I have a website that is, you know, joshsunquist.com as any speaker should own the domain of their name.com. Uh, that's a free tip for you speakers. You should uh, go ahead and get that that website going. And yeah, so yeah, if people want to want to reach out and uh, I find that there and yeah, and like you said, I just yeah, I just wrote this really man, it, yeah, it was like <laughs> I think when it was in my Google Docs, it was like 30 pages long or something. Dang. Uh article about like all of my advice for aspiring speakers cuz like well, I mean, you've built a whole empire out of uh, out of this, but yeah, just a lot of people are always like, "Josh, how do I get started as a speaker?" And I thought rather than writing these emails, the same email over and over, yep. I'll make a, a web URL that I can direct people to. And so um, yeah, your listeners uh, can check that out as well. Yeah, we'll definitely link up to that. It was a, a very, very well done article and there's a, there's a lot to it. So we'll definitely uh, send people that direction. So Josh, thanks for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise, Grant. Really appreciate you, uh, you having me on the, on the podcast. It's fun to chat about my favorite subjects, which are me <laughs> and the things that I do with my time. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. All right, there you go, my friends. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Josh Sunquist. Again, check out his stuff over at joshsunquist.com. We'll also be sure and link up to that article that I mentioned that he wrote the four speakers. So there's a lot of great content in there. Really good stuff. So I think that about wraps up today's episode. Appreciate you hanging out with us. Don't forget to leave us a review, subscribe, and I really do appreciate you being here. All right, catch you next time. You're awesome.